Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Listen to me, Montag. Once to each fireman, at least once in his career, he just itches to know what these books are all about. He just aches to know, isn't that so? Well, take my word for it, Montag. There's nothing there. The books have nothing to say. Hello and welcome to Cinema 60. I'm Jenna and this is Bart. Hello. And we have a very special guest today, Rachel Guma. Hello. Rachel Guma, the experimental filmmaker and instructor, sound and liquid light artist, and 1960s obsessive. Pretty much. Rachel has the best wardrobe of vintage clothing that I have ever seen in person. And I have known her for many years at this point, and I thought she was the perfect candidate to bring onto this podcast to talk about her pick of the 60s. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> yes, welcome. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. So, Rachel, please, why the 60s? I don't know exactly. I think it's because of mostly the fashion and just because it seemed like everything was an experimental phase in that in that time, like fashion, movies, music. I'm obsessed with mod culture and just the whole look, aesthetic, um, sound of the 60s everything i was just born in the wrong era oh yeah you feel that <laughs> but yeah no that that's so true i i really love how you've uh embodied so much of that spirit in in what you've made in your own artwork and, and revived for your own creative pursuits of today because it works so well and they're so neat still even to this day like all of your liquid light shows that i've been to have been so much fun <laughs> thanks so much <laughs> i didn't realize anybody was doing that anymore yeah. Brooklyn's doing it, baby. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you guys are called a clock face orange, right? Yep, that's our name. Great name. Wait, what's that from? That's from a movie. Clockwork orange, clock face orange. Oh, right, yeah. The reason why we use clock face is because we use the bowls that we use are clock faces, actually, because they don't have any insignias on them. So, yeah, we were coming up with names and we were like, a clock face orange. That's it. So. <laughs> Wasn't the band in one of the movies we watched, maybe it was um, uh, that that Clint Eastwood one, um, the club band was, was something like clock face orange. Oh, what really? Uh, Coogan's, Coogan's Block. Oh, yeah. It was... Um... Strawberry Alarm Clock? No, it was a made up band. Oh, okay. It had, it had orange in it, so I thought that was the, the obscure reference. But. Nice. It was, it was pigeon-toed orange peel. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> you know, that, that classic 60s band. <laughs> and you also teach film classes, right? You were, you were teaching an 8mm class. I do, yeah. Um, with a few organizations, Mono Noire, who only teaches analog filmmaking in Brooklyn, and so I started teaching the Super 8 classes, and now I'm really getting into stop-motion animation for my own work, so I'm teaching those classes, which is super fun. And then um, I taught at the Children's Museum Animation, which was a blast. 
And uh, yeah, I just teach wherever I can. And, you know, I love film and film studies and everything related to film. It's like 60s and film are my life, basically. <laughs> well, it sounds like, sounds like your taste in film run uh, a little more experimental than ours. I think we, we tend to embrace the really uh, cheesy mainstream stuff. Oh, I love those too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Bart won't let me choose all the Yoko Ono short films as an episode theme. <laughs> Come on, Bart. If you can find them, I'll watch them. Oh, challenge accepted. <laughs> I might have to travel down to Anthology Film Archive to to see them. Now. Yeah, I'm I'm a part of them too. I've worked for them for well, I that's actually how I started getting involved with the New York film community here is I went to school in San Francisco and then one of my teachers was based here, Jeannie Leota, and she was like, go to anthology. <laughs> so I started uh, interning there and it was amazing. And I met all these incredible people that I still collaborate with. And yeah, it's it's the epicenter here. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to anthology, who I miss very much during this time in quarantine. Me too. As per date of recording. Yes. But I'm excited to talk about your pick of the 60s, quite frankly, which was uh, Fahrenheit 451. Yep. directed by Francois Truffaut. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I picked this for three reasons, basically. The first is when Jenna invited me to do this and kind of thinking about it, I really wanted to do a tribute to uh, Nicholas Rogue, who had passed away uh, in November 2018. And he's mostly known as a director, right? for The Man Who Fell to Earth and Don't Look Now, which I absolutely love. But those are all in the 70s. Oh, and also, if you were a child of the 90s like me, he did The Witches, which was like my favorite film when I was a kid. Because my mom wouldn't let me watch anything dark, but she loved Jim Henson, so she let me watch The Witches and things like that. But that movie is so scary. I know. (laughs) So that was the only type of like dark thing I could watch. So I watched it over and over again. That's like a straight up nightmare childhood. (laughs) (laughs) When I found out that he directed that, I was like, man, I even had good taste when I was little. (laughs) Walkabout is one of the top five most important movies in my life. So I'm I'm also a big, big fan of his. Mm -hmm. Come on, guys. Performance. (laughs) I know. See, We all have different favorites. Yeah, Don't Look Now is for me. Oh, yeah, classic. Yeah. But I before he was a director, he was a cinematographer. He started out as a second unit in Lawrence of Arabia, and then he shot The Mask of the Red Death, uh, which is a beautifully shot film. And then he did this film. Uh, he shot this film, Fahrenheit 451. And I think it's 
an amazingly visceral and experiential type of film. So that's one reason. Nice. Uh, the second reason is that I feel like it's pretty underrated and underappreciated. Like I know that Bradbury himself did not like this film. And I'd have to say this may uh, get some hate mail, but I have to say that it's it's one of those films that I prefer the film to the book. And so, you know, I've read the book over and over again, but I think the film is just really strong and portrays what what Bradbury was trying to to say. And then the third reason is I think it's definitely inspired me as a filmmaker, like the way I compose, the way I think about color. It's just really inspiring to me and I can still see the influence of it. Well, right now you're wearing the fire engine red. That's all. Over <laughs> yes, I am. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I also, uh, I wrote an analysis of the film that had to do with shapes. So maybe we could get into that a little bit. So yeah, and I think it's just a quintessential 60s film. So thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, well, I want to talk about all of that, <laughs> especially the shape stuff, yeah. because I have been very vocal about how movies have taught me that what we can all look forward to in the future is unchecked violence uh, being carried out in front of op art. <laughs> Like, I wrote a whole article for Back Row featuring, uh, double featuring Clockwork Orange with the 10th victim uh, as a portrait of the violent and fashionable future that we all deserve. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want that, but we're living in the future now, and it's really not that far off from what we currently have, so. Yeah. Uh, So please, Shapes, let's hear it. I'm, I'm dying. Yeah, so... It came about because I had actually written another analysis on um, Safe, the Todd Haynes film about shapes too, which I just saw this correlation between, and especially here in Fahrenheit 451, the totalitarian world that's very strict and straight and everything is straight. The fire trucks are like super rectangular and angular the firehouses, the screens that they watch are rectangular, you know, like they could have chosen to have a circular TV in the future, but they didn't. And then as a contrast, everything that's part of the book world, and we'll get into that more, but the natural world is more curvy and there's a lot of circles that show up when the book people are around like the first shot is this guy who's who gets a call and he's escaping because he's a book person and he has an apple in his hand and all of his decorations are all circular so yeah i got really nerdy into it (laughs) I love that. I think you're totally on to something. It makes me think of like um, like Russian movies, especially Russian art, that like early 1900s art movement, um, the constructivism that was all about power angles and the force of squares and triangles versus circles and stuff like that. Right. Taking a hint from uh, architectural structures, you know, as far as power angles go. And so you see that like echoed in... You know, the angles they used in, in uh, even in Russian movies. 
like if there's a worker uprising, they're suddenly rushing onto the screen in a diagonal move and what have you. But yeah, no, it's it's really fascinating because I didn't even think about it for this movie, but you're totally onto something. I think I, I think I was too busy uh, fawning over how great it all looked. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't pick up on that while I was watching it, but now that you've mentioned it, I, I'm I'm thinking of the the circular window in the uh, in the fire chief's door that that Montag reaches through so he can you know when he's he he's committed to to breaking the rules at this point and he reaches through the circular window to unlock the door so he can look at the files to see if. Uh, if uh, Clarice has been arrested or not. Yeah, so. exactly. That's exactly one of like a perfect example. So the first yeah. time I watched this was maybe like 10 years or so ago. And I, I found my old review, which was only a two sentence review. And it was essentially that uh, the movie looks amazing, but I wish they tried harder to sell the story. And And that was my review. And I'm looking at that now and I'm thinking like, shut up <laughs> because this time watching it again and i mean d don't get me wrong i still i love the look of 60s future <laughs> i i love that retro futurism that all at once looks dated and brand new at the same time it's smart as hell too because it incorporates what was popular at the time like that you know like godard style primary palette but it tweaks it like just enough that it feels familiar but way wackier than anything that was actually you know any the way that anything looked like on a day-to-day -day level <laughs> but um but you know no rewatching it now suddenly something like acting which to me was the weakest point of the film when i watched it 10 years ago now it doesn't seem weak anymore in fact this this movie is is funny it's uh insightful it's interesting it's uh you know the even the the acting the slightly stiltedness of it works because mm. it's within the world of this film it tells you about the society that they're living in and just how yeah. messed up everything has become in the future yeah absolutely yeah it's also it is very 60s in the hairstyles and the fashion and the architecture, there's like brutalist and mid-century architecture. Right, totally. So it's, yeah, it is that retro-futuristic type of uh, situation. Even they use like hand-dialed phones that are like the old-style phones. And it's almost like they're, tr they're playing on the retro-futuristic thing already because they had more advanced phones at that time. But, but the... The art department chose to have these like even older elements to it, you know, totally. So so I think that it's it's of the time and also ahead of its time. It actually looked a lot like Mononcle to me, the Jacques Tati movie. Oh, yeah. Another of my favorites. <laughs> and that's from, you know, almost a decade earlier. But it mm -hmm. seems like a lot of that that's, you know, retro futurism is, uh, you know, looks very similar in that movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was just going to get my main problem with this movie out of the way right at the get-go, and it's that I don't think it nails the tone exactly. It's kind of an absurd idea. I mean, it's a, it's a satire, but it doesn't lay into the comedy and absurdity quite enough for me. So it takes, you know, it it takes this ridiculous idea, and I I, I might as well you know, get into the plot a little bit now, the, um, it's the future and books have been banned because the people in charge have decided that they make people unhappy. 
that's the excuse they give, but uh, but really they, uh, I mean, we we know it's just to keep the people stupid and manageable, and uh, and that's the real reason books have been banned. But it doesn't really go into that aspect of it at all. It, it mostly concentrates on just the the power of literature and you know how stories and writing and creating are you know, such an essential part of being human that that people can't live without it. But this movie starts out by by treating this idea in a in a very I don't know if realistic is the right word, but it, it's it feels like a serious drama and it takes a little while to sort of get used to this sort of absurd satirical idea. And uh and I I I guess I just feel like it, it the movie itself should have leaned into that a little bit more. It mm. uh, it it goes um you know it goes for the the heart and the drama and the emotions more than it um maybe needed to. I almost wish that uh, maybe uh, Truffaut had directed Alphaville and and Godard had directed this one because I, <laughs> I think that this this movie uh needed that sort of playful sort of troublemaking spirit uh, that uh, that I didn't think quite worked for Alphaville which needed a bit more heart and feeling but uh that's that's my two cents oh man it totally has that playfulness though but like perhaps it's less satirical and more just absurdist like i know that's like splitting hairs but like the humor in this is less about having a political point than it is about just the the, the absolute absurdity of humanity it's almost like it's almost like the prequel to idiocracy in that mm-hmm. way. I felt that. But I love I love all of the stuff with the television and her ridiculous sense of importance when it speaks to her. And I love those weird little moments like uh like in the playground where the cops looking for hidden books, which in itself is already absurd. And then of course uh you know, he finds this like doll-sized micro book in the stroller of like the most innocent-looking, massive-eyed, round-faced baby. Where <laughs> yeah. uh, there's like a man in the corner, looks like he's making out in the bushes, and the cop puts his hand on his shoulder, and the guy turns around, and it turns out he was just making out with himself, with like you know his arms <laughs> crossed in front of him. And the you know, so the cop taps him on the shoulder, and he just kind of stops and like shrugs at the cop <laughs> and walks away. <laughs> and it's such a weird little scene because it just serves to show you how absurd the entire situation is. Like it's just dumb. And I kind of love that about this movie. It, it didn't totally pick up on it the first time around because I was too caught up in like the seriousness of like book burning, and I was putting too much weight on the dystopian aspects mm. of it. Mm-hmm. But the second I let that go, it really opened up the entire movie for me this time around. I could see that. Yeah, there's a lot of really good gags, like what you were saying, the baby with the teeny tiny book. There's another one where when, when they're in the library and uh, when the captain is in the library and he holds up Mein Kampf. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's like, Books are no good, and this is why. And then he holds holds up Mein Kampf. Just the casting of Oscar Werner is uh, gives the the movie a real uh, Nazi flavor, fascist. Oh, absolutely. Flavor. That has yeah, to be absolutely. intentional. <laughs> yeah. The police chief reminded me of Mr. Deltoid from Clockwork Orange just by how he speaks, because he was always just like Alex Boy, yeah. <laughs> like he's always said, hmm. <laughs> and he's always like Montag. There's books, hmm. Montag. Montag. <laughs> What does Montag think? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, he's a he's a great character just in terms of like 
he's so authoritarian like with the kids who are learning to be firefighters and he's like i told you to stay away and then he's, he takes them into his office and then he's just like yelling his head off at them right then he'll say funny things like when when montag starts reading books and the environment reacts to him like the door won't open to his home anymore how it's right. supposed to be an automatic door and then the the fire pole they do this trick photography where they go up the fire pole because they play the film backwards and then down the fire pole and the pole won't like take him up and so then the the captain is like are the pole and montag having a problem <laughs> or something like that you know <laughs> so it's like it's these really strange things and actually that kind of reminds me of the rover thing in the prisoner that tv show right from the 60s yeah that's like the omniscient power that you know keeps him still on the island that's what the pole and and these other things remind me of is like oh well they know before anyone else because why would a fireman read books you know yeah this does feel like the same future as the prisoner I was yeah. thinking of them. <laughs> totally. Being murdered by a large circle. That's the future. <laughs> yeah. So, Rachel, what in what ways do you think the movie improves on the book? Well, like, I know that Ray Bradbury was upset that they didn't include the dog in it. The, like, fire dog or something like that. And I didn't really care for that part of it. And... I mean, it's been a long time since I've read it, but I I have this tendency to watch films and then read the book because um, I feel like it doesn't spoil either of them. But I just loved the way in which um, Truffaut took the essence of the film, especially like at the beginning, how you have the titles read instead of uh, instead of any text. You know, it says, uh, directed by Francois Truffaut, uh, music by Bernard Herrmann, and, you know, that whole thing at the beginning with all the antenna. I think that that is the essence of what's happening is there are no words. Mm -hmm. So you can't even have titles on the film at the beginning. Um, and then just all of the, the little intricacies of it, I just, enjoyed it more than I did the book and I'm not gonna say that it's it's not a good book because I think it's a great book I just for some reason I enjoyed the film better than the book <laughs> one thing we have to address is the casting of Julie Christie in two separate oh, roles yeah. um, that was an interesting choice mm -hmm. she is both uh, Montag's wife Linda and with a short blonde haircut she's Clarice the uh, the teacher or teacher in training who gets fired um, because she's a uh, troublemaking book person. Yeah, they just don't like her, so they fire her. Right. <laughs> I mean, other than adding to the whole sort of surreal, dreamlike feel of this movie, which is another thing I don't think it quite leaned into enough, I was uh, I was trying to, to make sense out of that choice. Mm. It's funny. I never even noticed it the first time watching it this time around. I was like, oh, my God, like, how did I miss this? Um, I don't know. 
it is a kind of an interesting choice. She got a lot of crap. I was reading reviews of this movie and, and a lot of people called her out as being bad in it. And I actually think she did a great job because obviously, number one, I for- didn't realize it was the same person. <laughs> and I know who she is. It's not like she's new to me. So, uh, you know, there's that. But I actually thought she did a terrific job as Linda. As Clarice, she, she was a bit wooden, but maybe that's because Clarice is a lover of words. And so she, you know, carefully chooses every word and, and speaks very carefully and then comes off a little wooden that way. Yeah. I think everyone's wooden, though. Yeah. I kind of, I don't know if that's just, I kind of chalk that up to the director. I wonder if it was a very specific choice. Hmm. He also, uh, Truffaut spoke very little English, maybe not any at all at this point, so... It must be hard to to judge acting if you can't understand what they're saying exactly. That's right, yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of self-referential things in here, too. Like, when we were talking about the books, at the very end, there's the book people, and uh, one of them is The Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And... Things like that, you know? Oh, and then there's a cahier de cinema that gets burned and that has a bout de souffle on it, you know, and Truffaut wrote for cahier. So I think that there's definitely some artifice. There's a picture of uh, Anna Karina and the nun in burning <laughs> too in that, in that same pile with the cahier de cinema. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, so I think there is some like artifice in it. You know, I, I think that... I don't think anyone else could have made this film. I could see how it could be panned because Truffaut had made the Quatre Cent Couple and stuff like that. But like, I just feel like it kind kind of kind of reminds me of um, La Nuit Americaine. Um, what's the American title? Day of for that? night. Yeah, day for night. You know, it just seems like like there's some winks and nods in this film. Mm-hmm that maybe wouldn't have been made by a more traditional filmmaker. That's definitely the, the most obvious sign that this was made by a French New Wave filmmaker. Mm-hmm. It's all that self-referential stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And the editing, I mean. <laughs> well, I actually thought that was also, I was wondering about, you know, there's so many books that they show burning in this, which felt almost also like the sort of sarcastic humor of, here we are talking about this horrible future and yet here we are doing it <laughs> right burning all these great works for you know and for what for a movie yeah but it does it does capture the horror of it to, to see these books it does you know, literally burning oh yeah i think it's pretty effective it's almost the, it's the most emotional part of the, <laughs> the movie mm. yeah <laughs> Where you don't get it from the characters, you definitely get it from from seeing these close-ups on on books that feel like they were chosen specifically for us, the audience that cares about this type of movie, too. And then seeing that woman who'd rather light the the fire and and burn herself up than leave her house, too, is definitely the the most emotional part of the movie. Mm -hmm. And Montag's response to that is is really, it's the first time you really start to get inside Montag's head at all when he... When he really just doesn't know what to do about her immolation. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you said you had some information about where they shot all of this, right? Oh, yeah. So the the very beginning where the guy is running out of his house is the Alton Housing Estate in South London. And that's a very brutalist architectural uh, building. 
um, which I kind of love brutalism. So it has this authoritarian, like really ugly, whatever you would think of it. But then it also, to me, it just screams the mid-century you know right and then um where they actually live is shot in Edgecombe Park in Berkshire all of those houses that look exactly the same and you know I would live in one of those houses (laughs) (laughs) I love the interior where was that monorail was that in like Dusseldorf that's like the only place I know that has that that's somewhere in France oh okay (laughs) yeah yeah I, I looked that one up too but I didn't write it down I love how that thing looks. I just love, there's so much of that, yeah, like this sort of weird stuff in a field, you know? like Yeah. yeah. And of course, this isn't a set, like this just existed. Yeah, exactly. And yet they take it out of time. You know, that's the other thing is to, like you were saying, everything is so 60s and so specific. And yet things like the firehouse being painted that bright red, but having a, you know, like a blue wall right next to it, it just makes all these things pop in such a way. Plus the, you know, the film, the way it's filmed and how it gets printed it just looks so it looks so out of time yeah yeah definitely and the i mean the architecture is is very thematic too the, all the uh, all the book lovers live in these traditional sort of ch- chateau looking houses that uh, clearly from from the previous century and then montag and and others live in these uh, sort of hideous modernist boxes and right. really hits you over the head with it and at one point they actually say that the older houses are not fireproof and the reason right. why the firemen don't put out fires anymore is because the new houses are fireproof so they don't have anything to do so they start fires instead of <laughs> put them out <laughs> i love that scene where uh, clarice gets her uncle gets taken and and the neighbor comes out to talk to montag and is like you know look at their house they never had an antenna isn't that strange yeah and they point that out and i'm like man like i don't know we're also living it and then the opening credits also being all these like close-ups on antennas and this this real emphasis on technology overtaking lives or basically becoming real life and it's like well here we are (laughs) (laughs) 2020 Truffaut we got it yeah especially with the screens I feel like I've been sending that that scene with the uh the wall screens the scene Mm -hmm. with the wall screens I feel like that's my life right now like (laughs) since since we're in seclusion all we're doing is zooming or skyping or whatever else and it's like my life is is that scene and I've been sending it to friends being like does anyone else feel this way (laughs) especially when she's like kind of interacting with it you know and then they're like Linda you're absolutely fantastic I love that scene I love that so much I love that she's watching like a defense class and then it turns into like I'm in a play and then this play is completely incoherent (laughs) and all these guys are like well we should put Bart in the yellow room but what if everyone else comes you know it's like well, what do you think and that and then they stare there's that zoom with that really menacing stare and then that red like of bram, bram, bram. and then she says something and they're like great idea what she said you know it's like it's like the it's the Simpsons joke about like happy birthday boy or girl like <laughs> <laughs> right you can't tell if they're actually listening but you know that in this kind of future they're definitely listening and then that she gets what was that whole thing with her being sort of uh you know she overdoses but then she becomes kind of brainwashed afterwards and she becomes more sensual 
and obsessed with touching herself and obsessed with, you know, it, it felt like a distraction from, you know, the mind that she is more obsessed with her body at this point. Well, everybody's on sedatives and she, she just overdosed on the sedatives, I guess. And when she's revived, she just, you know. Well, the guys who revive her and he's like, you know, you're not doctors. They're like, nah, we don't need that. <laughs> and the guys that revive her are like, well, when she comes out of it, she's going to be real hungry. If you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. She takes like 50 pills and that's her overdose. Like, they're right. like, oh, well, she took over 50 pills, so. <laughs> really strange. Yeah, and then after that, she she just comes out of it slightly different, you know? Like, she's sort of the same, but I don't know. It, it was interesting. I, I thought, too, that... I mean, what do you guys... Do you guys think that the ending of this movie is actually so positive that this, like, that book community... Like, all they do is they mull around in the forest. <laughs> <laughs> I get the like concept. Okay, books will live forever. But I also was like, really? This? This is all you guys have? Like, It reminded me of The Lobster more than anything. It did. Yeah, <laughs> totally. It totally made me think of that. Just to that point, I love the quote, we're tramps outwardly, but libraries inwardly. Right. Mm-hmm. So straight. And then that I wasn't sure, you know, the kid that's learning from the old man who's dying to me was also sort of funny. <laughs> I'm like, I know it wasn't meant to be. Like, that's that's when the sincerity really kicked in, I thought, was that, that last bit is meant to be sort of like this beautiful oasis, but I wasn't very impressed. <laughs> I, found, I thought it seemed kind of depressing that, that this is this it is did. the best they've got and how how long can they possibly survive and, and keep these works of literature alive, just memorizing it the way they are. So then maybe it is just as depressing as I expected it to be. <laughs> Especially with the snow, it feels like Soviet Russia or something. Like it feels like they're just all, especially at the end. But I do love the collage of sound that happens at the end where everyone is speaking the book in different languages. And yeah. I think that's a pretty amazing sound technique for it, you know. But it does feel like we're on the outskirts, you know. (laughs) So uh, is there uh, anything you can point to in this in the cinematography of this movie that you'd say is characteristic of Nicholas Rogue? I'd say specifically the colors, those bright reds and well, and also the choice of color differences in the house with Linda. She's always wearing these beige colors. And it's all beiges and browns and oranges. And and then you have the bright red fire trucks. But then you see natural colors with the book people. Um, so just that choice of making it visually different through color. And then just all of the, the compositions are... I could pause it at any time and... It, it just looks like a, a beautiful composition to me. The angular effect of even at the in the very first time you see the fire truck, how it pulls out and you see this like bright green grass and then you see the truck going by and it just has that contrast. The movement of that and everything I just And I would say that perhaps there was an intention of the circles versus squares. Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, I, I just compare it to Mask of the Red Death and how it's just very expressive. The, the images are telling you what the characters aren't. Uh, there's one point 
where you were talking about the circle of uh, Montag of yeah Montag going in and breaking into the captain's room. There's also one of the the house where he comes in and and he's looking into the circular window and that's another point where he becomes a little bit more human a little bit more book person you know there is there's a circular window when they find the library that that uh, one of the firemen very pointedly bashes through now that i think of it Ex- <laughs> exactly yeah and there's another one where she's where the woman has this circular lamp and again a fireman just like bashes it it's like circles no we only need squares (laughs) i'm convinced yeah this was intentional (laughs) yeah it wouldn't surprise me if Truffaut had to rely a bit on rogue for color and choices for sure considering this was his first color picture yeah absolutely i kind of think of the first color films of directors are quite interesting like like Antonioni's Red Desert, for sure. Blow yeah. up, you know? It's just these intense, intense colors. Yeah, I could definitely see that being Rogue's huge contribution to it. I wonder if this did, in a way, this sort of took a page out of Antonioni because it feels like things were painted for the film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't yeah. know that they went as far as spray painting bushes to be the right color gray, but... <laughs> That's a good point, yeah. I think that grass is definitely fake. Oh, yeah. (laughs) There's definitely a lot of that. I mean, but it works. It's so good. (laughs) (laughs) I love also that that comic book newspaper, you know, talking about just like who who contributed to this. It looked like Bob Peak illustrations. I couldn't confirm that. But granted, I probably could have tried a little harder. (laughs) I don't know if you guys know him, but he he did a lot of advertising uh, illustrations. And it just looks very much like his. It's just a very 1960s style of advertising whether or not it was him i just sort of i love that they managed to insert that into this film and i don't know and still and still make it feel that you know it's an it's familiar enough to feel realistically futuristic and i think there's also this is such a good time to be able to do this without too much special effects like the only big special effect in this besides some basic fake televisions is uh when you have the police in like hover jackets on like a green screen over a river but it looks cheesy and it looks really fake but i kind of loved it (laughs) (laughs) so this movie for you this was like do you find yourself thinking about this movie a lot um and coming back to it in regards to inspiration or is this something that just sort of like launched you on a career of loving this type of film i don't know i think that um it's almost like you see something when you're younger and then you get inspired by it or you don't realize how much it influences you and then you watch it again and you're like oh, I think I just stole that shot when I was working on this film, you know? (laughs) Right. Like, for example, I was working on this film about magnetism and I was shooting all of these antennas and in these really bright colors and I was like, Oh man, that's like a total ripoff of, <laughs> of the beginning. Homage, of you mean? <laughs> yes, yes, homage. <laughs> exactly. But I, I've always really appreciated Julie Christie. Um, I think she's amazing, and I can see some of my interest in fashion. Like I remember trying to dress like her in this film. 
like i was like huh you succeeded <laughs> thank you especially in clarice where the haircut these, like, even <laughs> it's true it's true <laughs> yeah like her and her and uh gene seberg have been my like inspirations fashion wise but yeah i think that's where it still kind of comes up and and I know that it's been panned a lot and I was even reading reviews and I started getting sad by reading all the <laughs> reviews because they're so harsh sometimes. But it just has a special place in my heart and I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. Yeah, I remember watching this in high school and not being very impressed at all. Like I thought it was striking looking, but it was not ever a movie I wanted to return to. Also, I, that was when I read the book, and I, I really liked the book, so maybe it was just comparing it to, you know, after having read the book, I didn't like the movie, but I, I definitely enjoyed revisiting it. There's a lot of great stuff in there. That that secret library, the hidden library, that's, I, I'm, I'm almost positive that's shown up in, in some of my dreams. Like, when they, when they go into that room, <laughs> it um, struck me, I gasped, because that's... 30 years ago, I, I saw this movie and, and I've been dreaming about that room ever since. Wow. See, that's that's the key is you watch the film, then you read the book. Yeah, it's <laughs> <that's> true. <laughs> but I'm sorry you had to revisit it, but I'm glad that uh, it was at least a little enjoyable. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I really was, I was, I'm wondering how I missed it the first time, quite frankly. I just... But I, you know, it is one of those things where I think if you're coming into this with the expectation of seeing a sci-fi, you know, or, or seeing something that is really character driven or, you know, some sort of acting toward the forest kind of situation and something very serious because, you know, oh, how dare they burn books kind of thing. You're just going to be disappointed because it subverts all of those <laughs> Every single one of those. And then if you come into this and you just kind of accept it for what it is and you really like go with it, you find that it actually, it gets to all of those points in its own way. It's just not the way you expected. And that is definitely something I think with 1960s cinema in general, and especially when we're talking about new wave and, and more experimental stuff from the sixties, once you kind of kill your expectations and you just kind of let the thing happen it's so much more enjoyable. <laughs> and it's like one of those things I think that keeps people from watching older films sometimes is this idea, oh, it's going to look old fashioned. It's not going to it's not going to convince me that these things are real. And it's like, well, maybe it wasn't even trying. Maybe that wasn't the point at all. I mean, like I, I bring up Star Trek all the time because I love Star Trek. But that's another good example of something that had such a low budget with very clearly cardboard sets and and yet the the heart of it is what makes it so good the dynamic between the characters and occasionally even the message of the the episode is just so great that it uplifts everything else and then you have this like crazy fashion and this weird stuff that also becomes just like what makes makes it so visually appealing and and brings you actually into a world of cardboard and primary colors and then you love it there it's wonderful <laughs> I'm really impressed that they got flat screen TVs exactly right in this movie. So I, yeah. I, I would say that, um, you know, young people watching this movie now wouldn't even think twice about what the TVs look like right. because it's what they look like right now. But but at the time, you know, they only had tube TVs with curved screens. So the wall screens that they have in this movie are, um, would have been, you know, a little very futuristic looking at the and time. And smart TV. It's there. Yeah. <laughs> 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you for bringing something for us to rewatch because Bart and I are always terrible about rewatching things anyhow. And this is just <laughs> another point to prove that we should be better about that because sometimes you rewatch it and you find a total gem. Yeah. I probably would not have rewatched this movie if you hadn't, uh, if you hadn't twisted our arms. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm, really, I'm really glad that, that I did. There's a lot more here cool. than I ever gave it credit for. So thank you. Of course. Thank you. This is super fun. We're going to publish your your paper on squares and circles. <laughs> <laughs> I need to find another film that uh that works with it and then I'll do a little Oh, an updated article? Yeah. Yeah, book mm. of it. I would love that. It's kind of ridiculous though because I wrote it like in my first year of grad, so it's pretty bad. <laughs> I don't know. You convinced me around this time, so. Yeah. The ideas are good anyway. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, right. Rachel. And uh, if you want to, if you live in Brooklyn, New York, and the quarantine is over and everyone's safe and we can go outdoors and hang out again, check out Clockface Orange. You guys have a Facebook page, right? We do. Yeah. And I have a website. I don't Oh, have yeah. Plug, please Facebook plug away. Page. It's just Rachel, R-A-C-H-A-E-L, Guma.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. This was so fun. Now we're all going to go back to our respective part of the forest where we repeat the same book over and over again. But not as close to other people. Which book would you be? <laughs> Catcher in the Rye. I can't lie. Bart? Catch 22, maybe. Catch 22. Ooh. How about you? I don't. I don't know. I asked a question that I don't know the answer to. <laughs> <laughs> Just off the top of your head, what's what's your gut response? Uh, uh, I'm just going to say Clockwork Orange. Nice. All right. We, we all pick, oh, I guess Catcher in the Rye is not 60s, but we all, we all pick books from that era. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.